All right, confession time. I have, I have some very, very minor struggles with patience. Sometimes I also lie. Uh, I, I, have, I have tremendous struggles with patience, okay? Jennifer even brought it up the other day. She's like, you're, you're, getting, you're getting really close to the cars in front of us. And I said, well, it's because they don't go immediately when the light turns green, okay? That's, how is that my problem? That's their problem. Uh, if somebody, if I'm in line at the grocery store and somebody in front of me pulls out paper coupons, my whole life just flashes before my eyes, okay? I was like, oh my goodness, I, I, I have, I have some, some struggles with patience. And you might be able to resonate with that. Some of y'all may have uh, similar struggles. But you know, it's in, increasingly, we live in a culture where, where everything is instantaneous, uh, Things that we want, we can have them fairly quickly and without a whole lot of hassle. You, right now, in church, you can stream your favorite show on your phone. Now, I don't recommend that, but you, it's possible that we are, we are people. We don't like to wait for things, and in most cases, we don't have to anymore. And so it's getting, I think, increasingly difficult to exhibit patience because there's less and less need for it. But y'all, when the Bible calls for for Christians to be patient, the concern in the Scripture is not so much with issues of personal convenience. Patience is not, well, I wish somebody would text me back, or I wish my, you know, i got to be patient with my kids. There's an aspect of that, of course. But when the Scripture talks about patience, it goes much deeper than that. It treats it as a matter of faith. When we talk about God's character, so often throughout the Scripture, God is referred to as patient, as long-suffering. He's patient toward us in bringing us to repentance. God is patient in His character, and therefore His children are called to be patient as well. Uh, Patience is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit that's given to us in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's an essential part of what it means to be a Christian. And James is going to show us today what patience is really all about. The, the, uh, the ultimate command to be patient, not just for the little issues and squabbles of life, but at its deepest level, why, why Christians are called to have this virtue about us. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you why. What James shows us and what the Scripture is clear on throughout, we need patience because we live in a deeply broken world. We live in a world of wickedness and injustice and disappointment and pain and trial. And yes, God has determined, promised to redeem us and deliver us. But we live in this meantime, this in-between time, where we're required to live patiently. We're required to wait on the Lord. That's ultimately what patience is meant to produce in us. A waiting on God and the fulfillment of His promises. So right here in James chapter 5... James begins, he takes a very strong prophetic stance in the early parts of this chapter. Uh, He he sounds a lot like Jeremiah in in the Old Testament. Very prophetic. He starts with a rebuke of the wicked uh, people who are outside of the faith. But then he turns to the church to show us how to live in the midst of a wicked world. So he's going to rebuke the wicked, but he's going to uh, exhort and encourage the faithful And he's going to do that right here in the first half of the chapter. And so we're going to look today at at verses 1 through 12. Uh, And and oftentimes we see in James, as we've gone through it, you've seen this. 
he takes a lot of hard turns. He's talking about one thing, then he turns real quickly and seems to change subjects. But often that's only on the surface that it appears that way. Usually James has a bigger picture in mind, and he's not really changing subjects. We're going to see that again today. So look with me at James chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to read something that's going to be very unsettling, and then we're going to read something that's going to be very encouraging, okay? And they, they're meant to go together. This is a prophetic word to unjust and ungodly people, verses 1 through 6. Let me read it. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. We are printing t-shirts with these verses on it. They're going to be for sale in the back. Um, I don't mean to make light of this. Y'all listen, this is when James says, come now you rich people. Weep and howl for the miseries which are coming upon you. Uh, I mentioned a minute ago, this is written to non-Christian people living outside of the church, but it should put a lump in our own throats. Because certainly by the world standards, most of us are quite rich. And in the Scripture, wealth and wickedness are generally put very close to one another. Wealth is not itself an evil thing. Money is not an evil thing. Money is a neutral thing. It's just money. But so often in the Scripture, we're told that wealth, and certainly the pursuit of wealth, is tied often very, very closely to wickedness. It's why Jesus said, Be on your guard against every form of greed. Luke 6. This is an important issue. Even if James is talking to other people, it seems, that this is something we still need to take a pause and consider. Okay. But really, I just said this, the issue is not money. James is not anti-money or anti-wealth, as if money is the evil thing. No, the issue, I think we see it clearly, is there's a consuming idolatry going on. These are people in these first six verses, they have built their lives on the accumulation of wealth. They have rejected God in favor of loving money and status. This goes back again to something Jesus said. You cannot love and serve both God and wealth. You will love one and you will hate the other because the heart cannot contain both. You will choose. You'll have to choose. And these people have made their choice. And you notice in verse 3, James says, Your greed will be a witness against you. Uh, It's not just bad for you in the present, this greed, this idolatry. It's going to haunt you forever, he says. It's going to consume you for eternity. In other words, a person might love wealth and status for what it appears to give me in the present. But James says that in the end, it's actually going to take everything from me. It is in the end not giving me anything. It's actually draining me and corrupting me. This is why Jesus asked this question. What would it profit a man? if he gained the whole world and yet forfeited his own soul. 
See, Jesus saw things the same way James does. This is not just money. This is a deeply spiritual issue. And he's condemning those who have rejected God in favor of wealth and status. So all, listen, all wealth corrodes eventually. James makes that point. It's going to rust. The moths will eat it. At the very least, you're going to have to pass it on to somebody else, not knowing what they're going to do with it. You can't take it with you. All wealth corrodes eventually. But the far greater uh, uh, threat for us is that it has a corrosive effect on us. It's not just the material itself. It's what the pursuit of money and wealth and status, the love of those things, it's what it does to the human being, to the heart, to the soul. Um, It corrodes the soul and it condemns us. Now, James takes it a step further in case we're thinking, well, he's just anti-rich. He just doesn't like rich people. But no, how did they become rich? Here's really the thing that bothers him the most. How did you become rich? He says you've become rich by cheating and oppressing the poor. By using your power to abuse your workers. By fattening yourselves while others go hungry. These were, these were very likely wealthy landowners. who were, They were virtually starving the mouths of the workers and the workers' families by withholding the wages from them. James says you're condemning them and putting them to death. And they have no power to resist you. Then he says, the cry of the poor has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Now, what does that mean? Uh, the Lord of Sabaoth, that, that basically means the Lord of hosts. This is painting God as the commander of an army of angels. A God who does not wink at injustice. And so while this is a, this is a clear warning to those living in wickedness, that, you're, that justice is going to come swiftly, and surely, it's also at the same time, why is, why is James writing these words to the church? These, aren't, aren't these for other people to read? Well, when James says these words, he's actually also giving an encouragement to the church. Because it's very, very likely that some of the Christians who made up the early church were the ones being oppressed, were the workers who were having their wages withheld from them. And so the condemnation of the wicked is, in some sense, a comfort to the righteous. Because it's a reminder to us that God is not aloof. He's not uncaring to those who suffer. God sees. God takes account. God is just. And He will settle things righteously. So it's a warning to the wicked, but it's also a comfort to the righteous. Now, this is where the church finds itself in the midst of this conversation, right? Because James is about to turn and and speak on what seems to be a different topic. But if we're considering the reality of life in a world that is darkened and wicked, where the wicked thrive in many cases and don't and don't suffer perhaps as they should, then we've got to take heart, take courage, take comfort in something. Right. And James turns to that next. He's going to give believers now the church an exhortation and encouragement. If if wickedness reigns in so many parts of the world that we inhabit, how are we meant to live in the meantime? How should we live? And we see that in verse 7. James says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. The Bible will often do this to us. That we have to hold... uh, multiple truths up together at the same time 
that don't always seem to work together. How is it that God is sovereign over all the universe and at the same time I'm still responsible for my choices? That's a big one. Uh, Well, here's one too, right here. James says two truths at the same time. One is that we live in a wicked world. That's what verses 1 through 6 have told us. And that wicked, powerful people oftentimes make the rules, at least on this level, the level in which we live. That this world is a place of injustice and unfairness and hardship and suffering. That's true. But also true, at the very same time, he says Jesus will return. And he will return in triumph. And he will establish his righteousness forever, the coming of the Lord. Both are true. One is true in our present One is equally true in the present, but will be realized fully in the future. So how are we meant to live in the meantime? And James gives us a very clear directive. He says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now, sometimes I hear that phrase, be patient. And my interpretation is, sit around and do nothing. As if patience is laziness. And that is not at all what James says is telling us, oh, just sit tight, don't do anything, just wait until God takes care of it all. No, and, and that's why I think part of the reason he gives us the, the image of the farmer. Now, I don't know if you know any farmers, or if you ever had any experience farming. I don't have any experience, but I know a few farmers. And I can tell you this, those guys aren't lazy. Those men and women and families, they work tirelessly, year-round, not just in the seasons of, of planting and harvesting. They're constantly cultivating the land for the sake of the produce. They work hard. But at the end of the day, James tells us what? The farmer cannot make rain fall from the sky. The farmer cannot will his crops to grow and grow healthy. He can't do it. In that sense, he's helpless. All the farmer can do at the end of the day is pray and patiently wait for the provision of God. God who sins the early and the late rains. And so this is, this is the command for us as Christians. That we're not meant to be lazy. That's not what patience means at all. We're meant to work hard. To expend our lives in obedience to Jesus. There's nothing lazy about following Christ. But in the end, only God can fulfill His divine promise. Only God can bring judgment upon the wicked and deliverance for the righteous. Only God can resolve history according to His perfect plan and promise. We can't bring that about. Only He can do it. And so our command is, you be patient, strengthening your hearts, taking courage. Jesus said, in this world you have trouble, but take courage because I have overcome the world. And so that's how we live in the meantime. Patiently strengthening our hearts because the coming of the Lord is near. Now, James is not making a a prediction on day and time when he says the coming of the Lord is near. We might translate that to say the coming of the Lord is at hand or is imminent. Uh, This is James' way of saying any time now, any time now, Jesus has died. Jesus has been raised. The only ultimate thing remaining right now in redemptive history is what? His return. And James says it can come any moment. That's what Jesus said. It will be like a thief in the night. He will come at a time when you least expect Him. So be ready. Be patient. Anytime now. And that's something I need to hear because I don't often live that way. Um, we all, why is this so important to us? It, it, it's a, 
there might be a temptation. You're listening to the unfolding of this Scripture. And you're thinking, this is great, but I don't know how this applies to me because I'm not working in a field and having my wages withheld from me. I'm not suffering in the same way that the early church perhaps was suffering. Uh, I mean, why, why do I need this kind of patience? And y'all, I think, I think if, we, if we don't see it, it's possible that we've cushioned ourselves against reality a little bit. I, I can be really guilty about this. Here's the truth about the world in which we live. Um, this is an evil place. Not because God made it that way. It's evil because of the corruption of sin. James has, has already told us over and again, pretty much in every chapter, the evils of the human heart that manifest in our speech and our behavior. And the world is not just evil in terms of human sin, but there's, there's all manner of tragedy and sickness and pain and disappointment and failure. The world is a place that cannot possibly fulfill us. That is not meant to be our ultimate end and aim. That's why we're not meant to root ourselves in this world. Because it's a difficult place. And so when we realize that the world in which we live, that's full of sin and selfishness, full of sickness and struggle, full of temptation and trouble, if we don't feel that, then it's probably because we've just tried to ignore it. Like the commercials that come on, you know, the, the, the commercials of you know, the children in Africa who need our money, and you probably do the same thing I do. You what? You change the channel. I don't want to watch that. I don't want to deal with that reality. I don't want to have to feel guilty about how I live. And so we try to cushion ourselves against a lot of the pain and struggle in this life. But if we're willing to look, to feel, and certainly if we're walking through difficulty on our, on our own, then we, we know what it's like. We know this feeling, this deep brokenness, the sin and the death that plague this world, it's always before us. That's why this should matter to us. Because these are problems that we see, that we're aware of, that we feel, but we cannot solve. We cannot solve. And so we have to place ourselves into the hands of the only one, the only person who can. And that's the call to be patient. That's why this matters. Uh, y'all, you don't need to turn there, but there's a, uh, I'd encourage you to read it in Romans 8. Read all of Romans 8, of course. But there's this place in the middle of Romans 8 where Paul gives us a picture of the creation. Everything that God has made, Paul says, the creation is groaning, is aching, is hurting. And the reason for that groaning of the creation is because of the corruption of all things that sin has ushered into the world. And so everything that isn't right, everything that isn't as it ought to be, Paul says, is the creation's way of groaning and longing for redemption. Things are not right here. And Paul says, even we groan within ourselves. We Christians, we feel the ache and the longing. Things are not right. That's true outside of us. It's also true inside of us. We're not as we ought to be. And yet Paul says there's coming a day at the revelation of the sons of God when we who have been adopted will be glorified in Jesus Christ. That when Jesus Christ returns, listen, our our glorification as Christians, which is promised to us, is going to set off the entire uh, reconciliation of the creation itself. The creation is groaning because it's waiting anxiously, longing for the day that Christ returns for his people. 
And y'all, that's, this, is, this is deep water right here. But listen, what is coming for you and me as believers in Jesus Christ, the glory that awaits us is going to be so magnificent, so great, so glorious, that the universe itself will not be able to contain it all. The universe itself will share in that glory with us because Jesus is powerful enough to redeem all things. And so when James calls us to be patient, the idea is that there is a glory that awaits us that looks nothing like the corruption of this present world. There's a perfection that Jesus Christ has purchased and will one day fulfill and will set us free and the creation itself set free from our corruption and our slavery. That's why Paul says in in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what we're waiting on. That's why we're called to be patient. Y'all, you you don't get to heaven as as some cleaned up, improved version of yourself. when, when When Christ returns for His church, we are glorified with Him. This is not Kyle plus... 10%, right? This is not a better version of you and me. We will be glorified with Him. We will reign with Him forever. And so, yes, this world is a mess. Yes, life is difficult. Yes, this is a problem beyond our solving. But in light of all that awaits us, that's been promised to us in Christ, James says, you be patient. You wait faithfully on the coming of the Lord. He's close. He's near. Do we see why this matters to us? That sounds great. Hope it sounds great to you. How do we do it? What do we do? James gives us some application right here. He always is so good about that. James tells us, okay, what does patience look like? Uh, And he gives us two things right here. Patience, um, and this is maybe for us uh, not what we would assume patience looks like, but patience first involves personal integrity. It's not just a private internal feeling. It's how we live. Personal integrity. And he says patience also involves endurance which means we have to be willing to suffer well until the day that Christ returns. Integrity and endurance. Look at verse 9. How do we we exhibit patience? He says, verse 9, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. I don't normally do this, but I want you to fast forward also to verse 12, because these kind of go together. Verse 12, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Uh, Two issues there, of course, issues of speech, which James brings up in every chapter of the book. Um, But the first is is about complaint. He says, don't complain against each other, uh, or don't grumble against one another, talking about within the church, fellow Christians. Now, this is different than slander and gossip and some of the other speech issues James has brought up. This kind of grumbling and complaining is due to a lack of patience with each other. James has told us, be patient on God. Wait on God. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And in the meantime, we've got to be patient with one another. And this is exceedingly difficult, isn't it? That we are so prone to want to complain and grumble against one another for the things that we don't like or for the things that set us off. 
We forget that we are all you know, works in progress, being sanctified by the Spirit of God. We expect that everybody ought to be a finished product, and when they fail us, when they let us down, when they don't live up to what we think they ought to be, we complain against them. We grumble. And y'all, the patience required within relationships means that we bear with one another. That's a direct command of the Scripture. Bear with one another. Even when it's difficult. Even when we're annoying and we get on each other's nerves. We, we're patient with each other. We forgive each other. So that we might walk in unity and love. Y'all, i got bad news for you. If you're looking around Harvest Church thinking, i got to spend eternity with these people? Yes! Well, you do, right? Now, the good news is I'm not going to be up there preaching when we all get to heaven. All right, we're going to have no need for that anymore. Uh, but y'all, this, this is us. This is, this is what, you know, to some degree, this is, this is a foretaste of heaven. And uh, we're, we're going to spend eternity with one another. And so practice now, patient, endurance, love, grace, forgiveness, do the things now that give a foretaste of heaven. Right? Because we're, we, we're it. Right? Um, and, and further, James says, don't, don't swear and take oaths. Now, this is not maybe as, quite as common today as it used to be, or at least we don't think of it this way. Uh, the person who's always making oaths and promises, that person is a manipulator. I think that's the idea here. If, if I'm always going around trying to prove how trustworthy I am, you're going to be prone to think I must not be that trustworthy. I'm always making promises. I'm always swearing. I might even invoke God. I swear to God. You have good reason not to trust me in that case because I'm trying to earn trust in a shortcut kind of way rather than becoming a trustworthy person that you would trust instinctively, intuitively. And that's what James is calling us. Again, this is an issue of patience. If I want to earn your trust, I can try to shortcut my way through it, make a lot of promises to you. Or I can live in a trustworthy way. I can tell the truth every day, every day, every day. Tell the truth. Be trustworthy. Does that take longer? It requires patience. Patience with one another because trust is earned, right? Yeah, that's okay. Because for the Christian, our yes should be yes, our no should be no, and that be the end of it. We don't have to make oaths and promises to try to prove anything. We live in a way that exhibits trust. Okay? And so we see this patient faith shows itself in our pursuit of integrity. It's not just private and internal feelings. It shows up in how we live. And then lastly, you see what James says, patience promotes endurance. Patience means we suffer well. Okay? Uh, verse 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience... Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Um, <clears throat> one of the, I, I, I assume maybe James intended this. He didn't say it directly. We're meant to take encouragement from the fact that when we suffer, we're not alone. And that's one of the enemy's tricks, is to try to convince me when things are going south in my life that I'm the only one suffering. Everybody else is doing just fine. Why me? But James is telling us, Hebrews does a great job of this in Hebrews 11 and 12. 
We, we have people who have come before us in this, who have suffered well and have endured patiently, have been faithful, who have received their prize, their crown. We're not alone in this. There are men and women, trust me, they've suffered far worse than we've suffered and they've endured in faith. We're not alone. We're not alone given our past, uh, the cloud of witnesses, those who've come before us, and we're not alone in the present either. We have brothers and sisters who walk with us. You're not alone. But right here, through it all, the prophets were God's chosen messengers. God's chosen people, they were maligned. They were persecuted. Some were killed. Things did not go well for them. But because they endured, we count them blessed. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure what the point of recognition might be in heaven, but my, my sense is that we'll meet the prophets in heaven and we'll thank them for their faithfulness. Thank you for your patient suffering as an example to me. Uh, James goes on. He actually gives a, a more a poignant example. He says, you've heard of the endurance of Job. Uh, Job, who was a righteous man and yet had basically every good thing in his life stripped away from him. Job suffered more in the Bible than any other person, save for Christ, Job suffered the worst, something beyond really the scope of our imagination. And yet, James says, Job endured in faith. When Job worshipped, even in the midst of his deepest pain, he said, though God slay me, yet I will trust in him. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through it all, James says, we see the outcome of the Lord's dealings. Job being our example, but the Lord being our hope that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Job was restored by the mercy of God. And so he says to us, you be patient like the prophets, you endure like Job. And through it all, we will find the ultimate end, that the Lord is full of compassion. The Lord is not aloof or indifferent to our suffering. He will fulfill His promise. He'll fulfill His promise. Uh, Y'all, this this past summer, we went to SeaWorld. Uh, Me me and uh, Jennifer and the boys... And we had a good time, but we made a critical mistake. We tried to go on one last ride before we left the park for the day. Things had been going so well. And we decided, no, no, let's let's ride the Rio Loco. And so we got in line. And the little thing up there on the, you know, the little digital timer said, 30 minutes, 30 minutes wait. We can do that. Well, we got in line and we waited and we waited and we waited. Sun was bearing down on us. This was in June. Uh, Kids were getting antsy. I was getting antsy. An hour and 20 minutes we waited. We finally got on the raft. And you know what? The Rio wasn't even that loco. (laughs) The the ride was boring. And then we got wet right before the ride was over. Waterfall. Which I should have seen coming, you know. But we get, I mean, right before we leave the park, now we're soaking wet. And it, it, was, it, was, it was an issue for us. We looked, I mean, I'm trying, you know, as, as a dad, I'm trying to be a, a good example to my kids, and I'm just failing because it was written all over my face. This, this, our patience and endurance did not pay off that day, okay? Um, so let me close by asking us this. How do you know your patience is going to pay off? I mean, you think about what James is asking of us today, what the Scripture asks of us, commands of us. Uh, The Scripture asks a lot of us in in this regard. James is saying, okay, the world is full of corruption. Life is full of hardship. 
Life is terribly unfair. Those who are above you may have the power to oppress you, and really there's nothing you can do about it. Um, But you, on your part, you be faithful. You endure. You be patient. Be holy. Reject sin. Love God. Treasure the Lord. Endure each other and be patient with one another, even when it's difficult. Love and be devoted to the church. That's a lot to ask, isn't it? Because what what the Scripture is basically saying to us is, build your entire life on this. Build your entire life on Jesus and now patiently wait, trusting in Him that in the end you will receive glory and be glorified along with Him. Well, how do we know? Here's how. Here's how we know. Y'all, our hope is not established only on what is to come. Our hope is established on what has already been. Our hope is built on a Savior who has already come. Jesus, who died to forgive your sins, who was then raised again as God's ultimate seal of victory over sin and over death forever. And listen, that, that the promise of what is to come, the reason we have to be patient For what is coming, that promise is built on a firm foundation of what God has already done for you in Christ. And so we don't patiently wait with our fingers crossed, not really sure how the ride's going to turn out. Hopefully in the end, it will be worth it. I've I've had conversations with with, uh, uh, Muslim people, and that is their hope. That's the basis of their hope. Obey God, be righteous. And in the end, hope that He's merciful. Hope that He's merciful. But we don't know. Y'all, that's not our hope. That's not our hope. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We don't wait patiently with our fingers crossed, hoping that it all turns out. No, by faith in Jesus, we have been saved. We have been secured for all eternity. And therefore, we can be patient. Even when life is absolutely falling apart all around us, we can be patient, we can endure, we can suffer well, because we know already that God has loved us. And the proof is in Christ. We know already that God has secured us. Because we as the sheep know our Savior's voice and He knows us. And we can trust Him now to bring about His perfect plan, to fulfill His perfect promise. Because God, who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will God not also freely give all things to us through Christ? That's a rhetorical question. If God has given us Christ, how will He not also fulfill in Christ what else He's promised? I want to close with a, a Scripture from 1 Peter I'm going to read an entire paragraph here because it's just that good and it's worth it. And uh, I'm not going to comment on it. I'm just going to read it and then we're going to pray. But take this to heart. This is, this is the reason God calls us to be patient. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance 
which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, what a true gift. This, this call to patience is. And Lord, I, I do pray where we are impatient behind the wheel, where we are impatient with our children, our spouse, certainly where we are impatient with each other in the church, that Lord, you would deal with our hearts. Um, and Lord, that you would bring us to repentance in these things. But Lord, don't let us stop there. Father, bring us to the greater and deeper reality today that we need a patience that is built on our faith in Christ. A patience, Lord, that is, that is the produce of your Holy Spirit in us. That, that we see and feel the absolute brokenness of our world. That I pray we see and feel the brokenness Lord, of, of our own continued temptations and, uh, and desires to, to reject You in sin. And that, Lord, we would groan. We would ache in anticipation for our deliverance. And, Lord, that we would be patient, trusting that that deliverance is not man-made, that there is not a politician there is no education, there's no social reform, there's no amount of money that can solve any of our problems. That we need the deliverance of the revelation of Jesus Christ who is to come. And Lord, I pray that you for me, for us today, that you will beat down, build into our hearts a patient endurance to fix our eyes on you, to delight ourselves in your word and your promises, to suffer well where you call us to suffer because we know what awaits us. We know that there is an inheritance unspoiled, undefiled, unfading that is reserved in heaven for us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that all our hope would be fixed on, on Him. So, Father, where we, have, where we have tried to ignore the suffering and the pain and the wickedness of this world just to try to keep it at bay, Lord, open our eyes to reality. Um, the more we try to cushion ourselves, um, the less we'll pursue things like patience and endurance. We need this. We need to stare the darkness in the face and, and Lord, be a people of light in the midst of it. 
And so, Lord, help us as we seek to patiently endure by fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ, what he has already done, and what he is surely going to finish. Lord, thank you that we can trust him and be patient in the meantime. We praise you and ask your grace upon us in his name. Amen.